This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reform Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reform views based on the Word of God and the Reform Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page. And you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you. For our scripture reading, we turn to two passages, first to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And just read the first six verses. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And then secondly, we turn to John chapter 14. Read the first 14 verses of John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, 
and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So far we read from God's word. These passages in all of Scripture are the basis for the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 8. There we read, How are these articles divided? Referring to the articles of the Apostles' Creed. Into three parts. The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second of God the Son and our redemption. The third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Because God hath so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. Dearly beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we consider this morning that fundamental doctrine of the Trinity, of believing the truth of the Trinity, a truth that was set forth early in the new dispensation by the church in her confessions, that she set forth the truth concerning the Trinity and stated that it was of utmost importance that we confess this fundamental truth. It's interesting to consider why it is that the church made this confession, why it is that the church early on wrote confessions that were about the Trinity. Here the Apostles' Creed. The first question is, how are these articles divided? The first question of this Lord's Day. And when it brings out the fact that they're divided into three parts corresponding to the three persons in God, that serves to bring out that very early on, the saints saw as fundamental this doctrine of the Trinity. Why was that? It was not simply that a few theologians sat down and started saying, you know, we need to start writing out what the truth is. What should we write about first? And then they thought, well, the Trinity seems pretty fundamental. Why don't we start there? But it doesn't happen that way. That God guides the church to de develop in her understanding of the truth of the Word of God in connection with real historical events that become the occasion for the church to recognize her need, her need to understand this truth. And a central event, a central event 
that became an occasion for God's people to dig into and confess the truth of the Trinity was the resurrection from, of Christ from the dead. For as they saw him, as they knew that he had raised himself from the dead, they confessed as Thomas did, my Lord and my God, that he was God himself, that the Messiah had conquered death, that he was God in the flesh. Early on, God's people came to understand that. That is, early on in the days of the new dispensation, that God's people began to understand that more clearly, that the Messiah is God. But that presented a problem, and that was, if the Son is God, and if the Father is God, who spoke to him from heaven, and of whom Jesus was repeatedly referring, then how is there only one God? And then when the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, and to have the Spirit in your heart meant to have God in your heart, then how could it be? How could it be that the Spirit also is God, and yet there is only one God? So there were two truths that were inseparably connected. The other problem that, are, that came about when Jesus rose from the dead was the question, if he's God, did he simply appear to be a man, or was he really a man? And how could he be both God and man? And those two issues, the idea of the incarnation and the truth of the Trinity were developed together, and that's why you see we see both of those truths as the central truth set forth in, in the ecumenical creeds, the shorter creeds that we hold to, that were developed in the first few centuries after the resurrection of Christ. Today, we consider specifically that truth of the Trinity. And as we consider that truth, we recognize also that this truth, contrary to the view of some, is of very practical importance. There are those that when they get to the truth of the Trinity kind of groan. They kind of groan because they think this is just kind of an intellectual exercise that we have to talk about different passages that prove the truth of the Trinity when we all know the truth of the Trinity. We know the Bible teaches it. And it doesn't seem like, well, what practical importance is it going to mean in my daily life? We have to hear about different heirs and what people taught and how those views are wrong and what the truth is concerning it. But then we go home and then it's like, how was that? How, how does that comfort me in my day-to-day -day life? We ought not to think of it that way. And we ought to recognize that God brings up the truth of the Trinity, the truth of the plurality of persons in God, in a very, very practical way. As set forth in John chapter 14 through John chapter 17, for example, repeatedly there's reference to the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit from the point of view of unity. 
from the point of view of the unity, the communion that there is within God. And that the idea of us having communion to experience life, to experience fellowship, to experience joy in communion is for us to have fellowship like the Father and the Son have fellowship. That as the Father is in the Son, as, as we read in verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father in me. So we also are to experience that unity. As the Son abides in the Father's love, so we are to abide in the Son's love. Communion. Communion experienced by us when we think about communion that there is in the triune God, the covenant fellowship, the root of the fellowship that we enjoy. Indeed, we are brought into the very fellowship that God has with himself. We consider this Lord's Day under the theme, Believing in the Triune God. And with that idea of fellowship and friendship, we look at it from the viewpoint of the three persons and how it is divided, how the Apostles' Creed is divided. And in a number of places, this division is brought forth. But first of all, that's believing in the Father, our Creator. Secondly, believing in the Son, our Redeemer. And third, believing in the Holy Spirit, our Sanctifier. So instead of looking at it from the viewpoint of the threeness and then the oneness, or the oneness and then the threeness, going through and considering this order that is set forth in a number of places in our confessions, the idea that we believe in God the Father, our Creator, the Son, our Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit, our Sanctifier, believing in the triune God. First of all, with regard to believing in the Father, our Creator. The Father is the first, then, of the three persons. Three distinct persons. That's fascinating. That that's the correct, that that is the truth of the Word of God, as answer 25 says. These three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. The persons are not parts. It's probably one of the most common errors is to refer to the three persons as parts of God. We should not speak that way. We should not speak that way even to our children. You know, it's difficult to speak about the truth of the Trinity, and sometimes we can be inclined to try to make it simpler, but we can't speak that which is false. We can't say, well, there are three parts of God, because there's not. God does not have parts. He's a simple being, which means he's not composed of parts. Each one is fully God. Each one is not part of God. Each one is fully God. And there are three that say, I, in God. And we can't fully comprehend that. That we teach to our children. They wonder, well, how can that be? We say, well, we can't fully understand that. But there are three persons, each that says, I, 
in God. And yet they are united. They are one being. Now each one of these persons, well, what's the difference between them? If there are three persons, there must be some difference. And there is. And that difference is made known in their name. Belgic Confession says each one has his own personality. And what is unique to each person is revealed in the name of that person. The Father. Well, he's the only one that begets. Of the three, a father begets a son. We read that when, we, when a father, an earthly father, be, has a child, has a son, he begets his son. Well, within the triune being of God, there is only one of the three persons that begets, and that is the father. And that's brought out in his name. His name is called the father. Brings out he's the only one that begets. The son, then, of course, is the only one that is begotten. He's the only one. The Father is not begotten, neither is the Spirit. The only one that is begotten is the Son. And how about the Spirit? The Spirit, we know, is the breath of God. The term Spirit could also be translated breath. Well, the breath of God, the Spirit or breath of God, is the only one who is breathed forth. As was illustrated when Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, or receive ye the Holy Breath. The only one that is breathed forth is the breath of God, the Spirit of God, who is breathed forth from both the Father and the Son. And it could only have been the Son Only the one who was eternally the Son in the being of God, who could have become the Son also in His his manhood. And only the one who is eternally the breath of God that could be breathed forth into our hearts. Now of those three, we consider first of all the Father. What does it mean that we believe in God the Father? The Belgic Confession brings out what that means. In Article 8 of the Belgic Confession, we read the Father, Article 8, the Belgic Confession says, after, a fir- after uh, the first rather long sentence, then we read, the Father is the cause, origin, and beginning of all things visible and invisible. The Father is the cause, the origin, and the beginning of all things visible and invisible. That same idea is brought out in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, which we read, where we read, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things. All things are of Him. And we, it says they're in him, but literally it's into him. Or we unto him. The idea is all things are of the Father and unto the Father. That's what we confess when we believe that God is the Father. 
Now, when we try to make that of practical importance, what does that mean? How is that significant to us? First of all, it means that when we think of believing in God the Father, we think of the fact that that means He's created us in Christ, that He's our Father. The comfort of the Trinity, that truth is of comfort to us when we think of the fact that we're confessing that the eternal Father of Christ is our Father. That He's our Father means He created us. He created us in Christ. For notice, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 8 is speaking of us believers. It speaks of how in the world there are God's many and Lord's many. But to us, there is but one God, the Father. And what does that mean, that we, have, that we believe in one God? That means we believe that that of him are all things, and that we, we have been created by him in Christ, and that we are to live unto his glory. All things, all things are of God our Father, and all things to be done to the glory of his name. He created us. Why did he create things? For the glory of his name. We know that. That means then that he created us. He saved us in Christ. He created us that we might live unto him. Unto him and not unto ourselves. That he's the father and we are unto him means, and this is how it comes of practical importance, that each day we think, God saved us so that we might live not unto ourselves, but unto him. He's, he's our creator. He created us for his pleasure, for his glory. That means that our whole life is to be to the glory of his name. And if we seek the glory of our own name, he will resist us. And when we try to bring attention to ourselves, when we try to advance our own cause, when we see that we're tempted to do that, we're to be reminded of the fact that we believe in the Father, our Creator, who created us for His glory, the glorious God who will not give His glory to another. He will not. And if we are proud and if we seek to draw attention to ourselves, He will resist us that we might learn that we were not created that we might live unto ourselves. We are unto him. There is one God. All things are of him, and we are unto him. And to believe in the Father is to believe that. It's to believe that he is our loving Father. He's our creator. To believe in God the Father also means that we believe that he's our loving father. As we say in the baptism form, words that are so familiar to us, when we're baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father witnesseth and sealeth unto us what? What does it mean to believe in God the Father? It brings out the idea, first of all, that it means he's made his covenant with us. He's the origin, the beginning, 
That means he is the one who establishes his covenant with us. The covenant is a bond of friendship, that there are three persons in God, not three modes. Some have spoken of God as though the three persons were three modes in which God can operate. Three modes can't have fellowship. Then you have one person that can operate in different modes. There wouldn't be any fellowship then. They are persons, three persons that have fellowship. In the, and that covenant God, when he makes his covenant with us, he brings us into that fellowship that he enjoys within himself. And that means that he has adopted us to be his children, that he has made his covenant with us, means, as Jeremiah 31 brings out, He's written his word in our heart. We are born from above. We have a new heart born from above. We are his children. We have been brought into the covenant. We know him. And we are to be assured that he will avert all evil or turn it to our profit. That's what it means to believe in God the Father. It means to believe that our Creator is our loving Father who will avert all evil or He'll turn it to our profit. Now, how practical is that? But that's what it means, we say right in our baptism form, that we've been baptized into the name of the triune God. We've been baptized in the name of the Father. That means we're to think about the fact that our Father will certainly turn either avert the evil that we're inclined to fear. He will either avert that evil or he will turn it to our profit. And he says to us, I'm your father. That's really true that I have formed you in the womb for myself. I love you. And I want you to experience the fellowship that is enjoyed in the being of God. Certainly, all these trials that we go through are trials our Father sends to us that we might experience more the fellowship, that everlasting covenant that we have with Him. He will certainly turn it to our profit. That's what we confess confess we believe in the Father, our Creator. Then we also say that we believe in the Son, our Redeemer. The Son, our Redeemer. What is the relationship between the Father and the Son? Because it's important to consider that because that's related to our relationship with God. So profound is this section in the book of John that we read. That, God, that Jesus spoke in detail about the relationship between the persons and how that is related to our own fellowship with God. We read, as we pointed out already, that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Verse 10 question is, what does that mean? 
What's the significance of that? We certainly need to understand it, that it's significant, is brought out in the, toward the end of the section in verse 21 of John 17. For there we read that Jesus prayed that we all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. He makes the same statement again. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. And the Son prays that we might be one, just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, that we may be one in the triune God, that they also may be one in us. What does it mean? In verse 10 of John 14, Jesus went on a bit and said, after he said that I am in the Father and the Father in me, then the next statement serves to bring out more what that means. He says, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. There's the reference. Now he's again referring to the Father dwelling in him. But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. That the Father is in the Son means the Son is speaking the Father's words. He's doing the Father's works. And that's why after he says this, when Philip then says, show us the Father, that Jesus says, you don't even understand what I'm saying. That I'm saying that when you see me, when you hear me, when you hear me speak, you're hearing the Father's words because the Father is in me. When you see what I do, you're seeing what the Father does. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the revelation of the Father. That's what the Son is. The Son is the revelation of the Father. He is the image of the Father, which means when you see the image, you see God. You see Him. You see His glory. He's the Word. The revelation of God is called the Word of God. The wisdom of God. And we, then as those who are also called sons, sons and daughters of God, the relationship that we are to have to God, to believe in God, to believe in the Son, to believe in the revelation of God in His Son, is for us to do what the Son does. So that we, so that in us, is seen the image of Christ. So that when one looks at us, they see what the Father does. That when they hear us speak, they hear what the Father says. That's what it is. To believe the Word and then to speak the Word. To believe in the Son is to believe God's Word. He is the Word of God. To believe in the Son is to believe the truth. That's what it is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, to believe in Christ is to believe the truth. And yet many people say that it really doesn't make a difference what you believe. 
That's to say that it really doesn't make a difference if you believe in the triune God. To believe in God triune is to believe in the Father, it's to believe in the Son. To believe in the Son is to believe in God's Word. It's to believe in God's wisdom. So that that word that we believe is the word that we speak. So that we can say, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. That's what, that's what our life is supposed to be like. That we could say that. The Father dwells in me. The Son dwells in me. That God's Son dwells in me, so I do what the Son does. And the Son does what the Father does. That the words that I speak, I don't speak of myself. I speak the Son's words, and the Son speaks the Father's words. So that when you see me, you see the work of the Father, the work of the Son in me. That's what we are to be able to say. That brings out the importance of our words. That our words, the words that we utter, are to be words that the Son speaks in and through us. The Son who always seeks the Father's glory. That's astounding. But we recognize, we recognize that's true, but we often forget about that. We often speak our own words. We often seek our own things. Unity is enjoyed in the way of our speaking the words of the Son who speaks the words of the Father. To believe in the Son, the Word, is to believe in Him as our Redeemer. We know the Son is the one who redeemed us. He is the one that took upon Himself human flesh, and He is the one who has purchased us. That He redeemed us, means that he owns us, that he is our Lord, as 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6 says, that there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, God the Son in our redemption. Our redemption means he purchased us, he's our Lord. That he's our Lord means he owns us. That he's our King means he rules in us. That he is our Lord means we're not our own. He's redeemed us. Now, on the one hand, that means to believe in the Son, our Redeemer, means to believe that all of our sins, all of our failings to imitate the Son as we ought, all of our failings, all of our sins and misery, our sinfulness, is forgiven. To believe the Son is to believe He has washed us. When we are baptized in the name of the Son, the Son witnesseth and sealeth unto us that he hath paid for all of our sins. He's incorporated us into the fellowship of his death and resurrection so that we are freed from all of our sins and have the right to everlasting life. That's what it is. To believe the Son is to believe that. To not listen to the devil that would take away our comfort and try to think, get us to think that we're not forgiven, that the Father doesn't love us, but to recognize that all of our sins have been forever removed. 
completely paid for. He's redeemed us. But also that he has redeemed us means now as those who are forgiven, we're not our own. We are not our own. All the blessings come to us through Christ who has redeemed us. And we, through Christ who purchased us, approach the Father. We are not our own. We belong to our Redeemer. And then that same idea, that means we're to speak His words. We're to do His works. That our works throughout each day are to be the works that the Son does in and through us. And when we come to the Father, we're to come to the Father through the Son. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. One Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, that the Father grants us all the blessings through His Son. That God created all things through His Son. And we, by Him, we come unto the Father through the Son. He said, I am the way. You come to the Father through me. You ask for blessings in my name. And that idea of asking for blessings in the name of Christ means Christ is the one requesting them. I mean, that's, you know, if we say I'm doing this in somebody else's name, that means that really they are making this request through me or they are speaking this through me. To come to the Father in the name of the Son is to request the things that the Son, who is in us, is requesting. And Jesus said, you ask anything in my name, that will I do. You ask anything in the name of the Son. That's what it is, to believe in the Son, our Redeemer. And finally, we believe in the Holy Spirit, our Sanctifier. And the Spirit, as was pointed out already, is not a second Son. He's not begotten. If he was, then he'd be a second son. Then there would be the father and two sons. But he's not begotten. He's breathed forth. Now that's quite striking. And he's breathed forth from both the father and the son. Where the son is begotten only of the father, the son is not begotten of the father and begotten of the spirit, then you'd have two fathers. The Son is begotten only of one person, the Father. But the Spirit is breathed forth from two. He's breathed forth from the Father, and He's breathed forth from the Son. From the Father to the Son. And breathed forth from the Son to us. So that the Spirit not only comes through the Son, but from the Son. That's why also in the blessings, their blessings are always said to are said in the benedictions are said to be coming from the God the Father and from the Son. Not from the Father through the Son only. That's true. That's not inaccurate to say that the blessings come from the Father through the Son. But the scriptures say repeatedly 
from the Father and from the Son. That's the double procession of the Spirit, that the Spirit proceeds from the Son, as was brought out when Jesus breathed on the disciples, that the Spirit was coming from Him. Now that's significant because that brings out that the Spirit who sanctifies us comes from the Word. But first of all, briefly, that idea that the Spirit sanctifies us means is when we're baptized in the name of the Spirit, that means that He will dwell in us, sanctify us to be members of Christ, applying unto us that which we have in Christ. He applies the blessings to us. He's the one that washes away the sins in our own consciousness and renews us according to the image of God. He's the one who makes us, the Holy Spirit makes us to be holy, like God. He causes us to partake of His holiness. That's what the Spirit does. He's dwelling in us, and He's constantly doing that. He does that as the Spirit who proceeds from the Word. He sanctifies us by the truth. Again, we see the significance in our own life in believing in the Trinity. The Spirit speaks the Word. Similar language is used about the Spirit that the Son used about Himself in relation to the Father. The Son said about the Spirit, He won't speak of Himself. He takes of mine and shows it to you. Which means the Spirit speaks to us God's Word. He applies to our hearts what we have here. Not something else. To deny that the Spirit proceeds from the Word of God as we have that Word of God also recorded here in Scripture, because here we have the revelation of the Son of God, to deny that is to go into the air of mysticism. And the Eastern churches that denied that the Spirit proceeded from the Son went in the area of mysticism, the Eastern Orthodox churches. Because then you have a revelation of the Spirit that doesn't come from the Word. If the Spirit doesn't proceed from the Son, then that means there's a disconnect between the Spirit and the Word, and the Spirit brings some new, something else besides the Word of God. And that is in, leads one in the air of mysticism. But when we understand that the Spirit brings to us the Word, this Word that He sanctifies us by bringing us this Word and applying it to us in our lives, then we experience more. Then we think that the way we experience what the Spirit does is in the way of us meditating upon what the Spirit tells us. What does the Spirit do? Spirit is not just our own feelings. Some people will speak of it that way as really what the Spirit tells them is really just nothing more than what they feel. What they want, they claim is the Spirit. What the Spirit does is He takes the principles that are found here and He 
applies them to us. He speaks to us about the Son. And he, in doing so, he guides us to see what we are to do. He says, this is what the Son does. And you are in the Son, and the Son is in you. That's what the Spirit does. And as the Spirit takes these words about the Son and speaks them to us, we grow more to live out that life and experience. This is the way to life. We're baptized into the name of the triune God. That means into the fellowship that God has within himself. And God says, this is the way. The way to enjoy fellowship with God is the way of receiving the Spirit who dwells in us and who will never leave us, hearing, yielding to the work of the Spirit, receiving His words, so that we speak not of ourselves, but we speak the words that the Spirit of Christ guides us to speak, that we imitate the Son, and thus in that way we imitate the Father. And in that way, we experience unity. When we're doing that, if each day we got up and were consciously doing that, what would the result be in our marriages? What would the result be in our, in our relationship with parents and children? What would be the result in our schools as we meet with fellow classmates? What would be the result in the congregation here and in our churches? But communion, unity, peace, joy, and the joy of knowing that we are shining forth the glory of the triune God. That's what it would mean. And that's the work that the Spirit begins in us. It's a small beginning, but it is a beginning. And we experience it more the more we think of what we're saying. We say, I believe in the triune God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we call upon Thee, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, apply Thy Word to our heart and grant us grace that we may learn to speak the words the Spirit guides us to speak, the words of the Son, the words of the Father, to do Thy works, to glorify Thy name, Father, grant us this grace, for we believe in Thee. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.